St. Fidelis of Sigmaringen, the first martyr of the Capuchin order, martyred by Protestants, heretics, left us a kind of testament, the following affirmation before his martyrdom, exclaiming, quotation, O Catholic faith, how solid, how strong you are, how deeply rooted, how firmly founded on a solid rock. Heaven and earth will pass away, but you, Catholic faith, can never pass away. St. Fidelis of Sigmaringen. Let us humbly ask the Lord to grant us through the intercession of Our Lady the grace to be able to say, I know my Catholic faith. I will not permit to be confused. For the sake of this faith, I am ready to die. Thank you. This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. RestoringTheFaith.com Well, hello everybody and good morning. This is a simulcast. This is going to be on the Crusade Channel, an exclusive interview with His Excellency Bishop Athanasius Schneider, airing today at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's Friday. It's the 15th day of the 12th month of the year of our Lord 2023. And uh, I am your host, Mike Parrott. And I, it is my honor to bring on uh, His Excellency Bishop Schneider, who joins the uh, Crusade Channel, at least on my program, for the first time. But this is your second or third time um, on Restoring the Faith Media. Good morning, sir, and good evening, your time. Uh, well, you are the author of The Springtime That Never Came. You are the author of uh, uh, Christus Vincit and so many others. Um, it's been a while since we've had a new catechism. This, uh, here, I'll pull it up on the screen here. Why did you do it? First, simply, it was, uh, I was asked by lay faithful, by a father of family in the United States to do this, since um, there is a need in our day to clarify some current issues of faith at some points of crisis within the church, within the world, the new challenges with the new ideologies and so on, which were not so much addressed in the traditional catechisms or even in the so-called <clears throat> Catechism of the Catholic Church of John Paul II, which was published 30 years ago. Uh -huh. So therefore, uh, I think it was meaningful to publish a new catechism addressing all the current challenges and issues and also clarify some doubtful or ambiguous points left even in some uh, phrases of the Second Vatican Council and even some phrases in the catechism of John Paul II. Mm -hmm. This was the aim to present to give to the faithful a help and in these confusing times. Your Excellency, what are a few examples of those things that needed to be clarified um, from the 1983 um, catechism or, you know, 
or, or from the Second Vatican Council? First, I think the basic <clears throat> issue with the Second Vatican Council and the <clears throat> time which followed after, and also which is in some way present in the Catechism of John Paul II, is the issue of <clears throat> religious freedom or religious yeah. liberty, which had to be more clarified. There remained <clears throat> some ambiguity because it is a cause of the relativism, which caused then <clears throat> the so-called interreligious meetings, which were based also on the <clears throat> Declaration on Religious Liberty in the Second Vatican Council, all the praxis which the popes did since the Second Vatican Council, the ecumenical meetings, the interreligious meetings, which caused uh, a lot of confusion and made a message of relativism, but it was based on this teaching of, Second, of the Second Vatican Council, which states that <clears throat> uh, to be uh, impe not impeded uh, by, the, by the authorities or human authorities, in choosing and in spreading and um, practicing individually and collectively, commonly, yeah. the religion, the religion of the choice of the conscience, uh, it's, uh, says the text of the council, it is <clears throat> based on human nature. And so consequently it's, a, um, it's based in human nature and in, in, in natural law and, so therefore it is very ambiguous because it is not the will of God that there are different religions. Mm -hmm. And this, not, this is not a right of the nature to propagate, let us say, or to, which is against the first commandment of God. There can be toler toleration, tolerated, as God tolerates also our since and uh, but it's a difference a basic and difference between tolerating to some extent the exercise of other religions and to declare that they have a natural right to spread their religion yeah. uh, or to be not to be not impeded this basically the same expression in another way and this then makes the question but when it is the natural right of your nature to spread even a wrong religion then it causes the situation of relativism that basically there can be different religions and it is a demand of your natural right to to have another religion and to, or to not be impeded to practice. And this has to be clarified, and I tried in the Catechism to clarify it with the voice of the magisterium of all the times, which the church always taught before the Council. And so um, I hope that it could bring some clarity here, to not to continue with these methods of confusing and relativizing interreligious praxis or ecumenism. Yeah. 
So the American empire is really founded on this idea of religious freedom. I mean, it's like enshrined into our founding documents. Um, probably the, the whole Anglosphere, the English speaking world uh, would agree with that assessment. Is that why you think, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you wrote this in multiple languages. Was it important for you to write this in English and get it out to, to us English speakers? Because I, th I think that era of religious liberty uh, in, in our day is so pervasive and even traditional Catholics uh, buy into it. Yes, of course, it, I wrote in English because it was an, I was asked from the United States to do this. Um, this idea of almost um, unlimited religious freedom was firstly proclaimed by the Freemasonry. And it was always an aim of Freemasonry in the French Revolution to declare this. Um, and so we had this already in the, the, the aims of Freemasonry. Of course, the United States, there was a, in that historical situation also a positive element that the Catholic Church could develop and grow in the United States, even with some difficulties and persecutions also in the, in the 19th century, but nevertheless, but it, it is, was sufficient, the traditional teaching of the church, it could be um, um, easily uh, resolved this problem with the teaching of the religious tolerance that to some extent we can tolerate this, but mm -hmm. not to change the basic principle which the Catholic Church always taught. Even so, of course, the Second Vatican Council says the teaching remains, the traditional teaching on religious liberty remains. But this is the problem with some texts of the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. And that in one phrase it is stated a traditional affirmation and in the next phrase, or subsequently, it is in some way undermined right. with, with ambiguous uh, wording. And this is the same also in liturgy. Right. Same problem as with the Nobus Ordo, the new mess. It is valid. It is not heretical. But there are some elements within the right which is undermining the... Uh, essence of the Holy Mass, which is the sacramental celebration of the sacrifice of the cross. And uh, even though we have the Roman canon, the first Roman canon is remained, so you can always take this, but at the same time there is the second Eucharistic prayer, which is basically a Protestant kind of prayer. Yeah, It is not sufficient for a Catholic faith to express the, the full faith in the sacrificial character of the Mass. So you see they are both on, on bo um, simply listed up. And this is our problem with all the uh, <clears throat> situation which, in which we are living now. The, there are some good elements and then there are, uh, or most recently, the uh, Amoris Laetitia document of Pope Francis, which always with, uh, again states that uh, the marriage is indissoluble, indissolubility of marriage, and uh, but then makes a door opening for allowing in some occasions 
the Holy Communion to receive for divorced right. people and so-called remarried. Um, Your Excellency, just to tie a bow in, uh, on the religious liberty thing, um, last night in the state of Iowa in the United States, there was a statue of Baphomet in the Iowa State House, and a Christian um, and Navy veteran went in there. Um, I think his name was Michael something, and he uh, he basically de de uh, decapitated it. He took it out. Uh, isn't setting up satanic temples like inside the state houses that just just the logical extension of religious liberty, of pluralism, of tolerance? Uh, taken to its logical extreme, and do you think that we have a duty to uh, to behave in this exact same way, where we where we tear down these idols out of our state houses? Yes, I think this is the logical consequence of what the the affirmation of Vatican II, which I quoted, it is that to be unimpeded to practice your religion is um, a natural right of uh, human natural right in the in the nature it's not only a civil right but a natural right so this is of course because satanism is also in our day in, in some countries uh an acknowledged reli religion like the other religions so right. they have the same right to unimpededly spread their religion to, to put also statues of Satan, Lucifer and so on, or this one which you mentioned. And this is the, and then the other, which I would mention, <coughs> um, Pope Francis, um, four years ago, signed a document in Abu Dhabi, an interreligious document, where is affirmed, uh, among other points, this phrase, that uh, the, the diversity of the sexes, human men and women, and then the diversity of cultures, of people, of nations, and of religions, is an expression of the wise will of the Creator. And this phrase is unacceptable for a Catholic because it's undermining clearly the first commandment of God and putting all religions on the same level. And then Pope Francis, on his flight back to Rome, he was asked by a journalist if this phrase is not problematic from the theological point of view. And Pope Francis answered almost clearly, saying that no, this affirmation is not a millimeter uh, away from what the Second Vatican Council taught. And in this right. way, I, I must say he was right, Pope Francis, in stating mm -hmm. this. This is also the document of Abu Dhabi. It's simply a logical consequence of the affirmation of the Second Vatican Council. Then, then the second question you, have, you put, if we can destroy, uh, let us say, satanic symbols, um, well, which are displayed publicly, it depends. Uh, you have to, to balance and to evaluate the, the situation. In the first centuries, there were Christians who publicly destroyed the pagan idols 
and therefore they were martyr, martyrized, killed. Uh, and so also some missionaries, St. Boniface, the apostle of Germany, he, with his sword, he cut down the holy tree of this Germanic tribe, um, pagan tribe of their main god, which was venerated in this oak, uh, the Donar god. And so he, he showed this, this, this is empty idols. There were cases, so it depends. Uh, in our time, we, we have to evaluate this. I cannot give now a, a concrete, say, you, in principle, we can do this because God commanded this. Uh, but of course, not to, to do violence, physical violence to a person. This we have not to do. This is Jesus Christ did not say you have to take the sword and, and defend him with the sword. He prohibited this, the apostles. But we can remove uh, these signs or destroy in a peaceful way when it is possible, but without uh, harming physically a person. Okay. Um, you, there's been a lot of strong reactions to Credo. I'm going to pull up the image of it again. This is available um, via, you can find it on Amazon, but you can also get it um, straight from Sophia Institute Press. You can go to sophiainstitutepress.com. I'll put all the links uh, down below for the YouTube folks as well. Strong opinions, Your Excellency, about this and lots of critics coming out of the woodwork. Um, people assuming that you're just putting this out to, you know, to kind of uh, stir the pot, so to speak, as we say in the United States. Here's a video of you saying um, that we are a Catholic family and why exactly you did it. And when I am in my conscience as a bishop seeing some dangers for the entire body of the church. We are a family. The church is not a, an NGO or uh, we are a family. In a family, you can, you can say to the father or to the elder brother respectfully also some admonitions. And this, this, this climate should be in the church, but this is missing. I'm seeing bishops are intimidated, many. They don't have the courage to say something. For the love for the Pope, even. And this, when I am doing, I am really saying this in all my conscience, it is for love for him, for real brotherly love. And I will tell him, Holy Father, I am your best friend. I have never prayed so much for no one in my life as for Pope Francis, really. And when I made some statements, even publicly, I did this for love for him, to help him, as St. Paul did to Peter in Antioch, or as some saints did in the past, St. Bridget, St. Catherine of Siena, they addressed the popes with very clear statements. And so I think this should be our climate in the church, spiritual. I consider they do be represented by the... Your Excellency, you've, you've written something that is clear and simple. Why would people have such strong opinions about that? Why are people reacting so negatively, especially, you know, um, I, I guess liberal Catholics or people who love Vatican II? Why do they oppose clear and simple? Because always in all times, the truth in clarity 
also provoked hatred and resistance, as the life of our Lord Jesus Christ itself showed. Our Lord Jesus Christ was rejected because he spoke the truth, and he was hated because of the truth, and he was crucified because he is the he declared, I am the truth, and I came in this world to testify, to give witness about the truth. And so this is the mission of the church and all the saints, why all the martyrs, why were they uh, martyrized? Because they spoke the truth or did the truth. St. John the Baptist, also the example, and so on. And so there is always the truth is also causing um, this um, rejection by people who, whom probably some um, clear demands of the truth, because the truth is also have has the, its exigencies and its demanding, and these de these demands of the truth is for some people they are uncomfortable with this, bothering them. And so they criticize or reject uh, the clarity of the truth. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I want to go to one of your critics, um, and I'm not going to name his name because he's really just kind of an irrelevant layman just like me. Um, but he says, he makes the claim, he made a whole video about you, a couple videos about you saying that you have redefined the word schism. Uh, in in credo, I want to read. Um, well, his, his his main argument. I'll read it to you here in a second. His main argument is that you say that a schismatic is somebody who fails to recognize the Pope, and uh, his argument is that uh, that that actually a schismatic is somebody who refuses to obey the Pope. This dichotomy between recognize and and blind obedience uh, when it comes to the Holy Father. This seems to be a, a huge tension point in, uh, with, with Catholics today, especially between traditional Catholics and non-traditional Catholics. Could you speak to that um, and, and perhaps answer that critic um, here today? Yes, this is, um, I think that the definition of schism, of course, it is given in the canon, Code of Canon Law. It's not a dogmatic first uh, affirmation, it is a um, uh, juridical affirmation, and um, it is a fruit of a too narrow view of the papal authority or to an exaggerated uh, view of the pap papal authority, which came especially in the last 200 years or more uh, extensively after this, the Council of Trent, because it was understandable, the historical context of the fight <coughs> against Protestantism, against French Revolution, all these Freemasonic and liberal attacks on the papacy, it is understandable that then the Catholics started to defend the papacy, but yeah. from these from these polemics and battles to defend the papacy, there um, was developed a kind of exaggerated understanding 
of papal authority. And this was refle is reflected in this uh, definition or description of schism in the Court of Canon Law. It should be, it should be seen historically. Until this, the Council of Trent, the understanding of schism was not so narrow, and especially the first millennium. And the church, the fathers of the church had a most broader view. And so, and this is also Catholic. We cannot say that this broader view of schism is not Catholic. It was sustained and lived in the church in the first millennium peacefully. And so in that time, it was sufficient to be a Catholic and not a schismatic to be, to recognize first um, theoretically in faith, the papacy, the primacy, the belief that this is um, the divine structure of the church, the primacy of Peter and his successors. And, and secondly, also to show it practically. And now it comes the question, and this can differ in different historical times, situations, what is practically? how we understand practically to be united with the Pope. So in the, in the first millennium, it was sufficient that you recognized publicly the Pope and uh, usually mentioned him in the Holy Mass, in the Eucharist or Eucharistic communion. And this was sufficient or accepted when he uh, published or answered dogmatic questions in a definitive way. For example, Saint Athanasius, he was disobedient to the Pope and he was declared schismatic by Pope Liberius. Pope Liberius, in the Arian crisis, uh, ordered Saint Athanasius in holy obedience to make canonical um, Eucharistic communion with the uh, heretic Arian episcopacy in the East, and Saint Athanasius could not obey, he disobeyed the Pope. He said, I cannot make canonical communion with, with clear heretics. And therefore the Pope excommunicated him and declared him schismatic. We have this, even in the Denzinger, there are four fragments uh, um, which were uh, kept by Saint Hilarius of Poitiers, Hilary of Poitiers. It is historical, proven. And Saint Athanasius himself, in one of his writings, he mentions, he mentioned this case of that he was excluded from the church, but without polemics. And nevertheless, he continued to celebrate publicly mass, even ordained bishops. Because it was an extraordinary situation in the church, so um, we we see there there are different situations in the in the history of the church, and in our day we have a very difficult situation of a confusion, of an penetration infiltration of ambiguity within the church, within the liturgy, the Novus ordered Mass, some affirmations of the Second Vatican Council. And so in this situation, I think uh, it would be sufficient, uh, this view of uh, unity of the Pope, 
uh, to be united with him, to recognize him, the current Pope, and to mention him in the Eucharist. And of course, when I am a Catholic and a bishop and a priest, to receive his administrative um, decisions, when he will depose me, I will obey. Or yeah. when yeah. he will transfer another bishop to another diocese, we have to, we have to accept this. Uh, but to, in some occasions, we cannot obey him when he will say us to prohibit categorically, let us say, to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, which is a, a millennium old Mass, and it's not a Tridentine Mass at all. It is the Mass before the Council of Trent. It is the Mass of the Saints. And then when the Pope will categorically prohibit this to a bishop and a priest, I, can, I, I would say in this case we cannot obey. And when we will not obey, we will obey for the love of the Pope, for the love of the Holy See, and not for to contrast him, because he is in this case abusing his powers, as Pope Liberius abused his powers excommunicating Sanct Athanasius. So there are very specific rare occasions. And um, so we have to balance these situations. It seems like those occasions are becoming less and less rare, to be honest, in, in our modern time. And I just want to press you on this point uh, just a little bit. It says um, in Credo, uh, paragraph 564, who are schismatics, those who receive baptism, yet have been separated from the unity of the Catholic Church by refusing to recognize the Supreme Pontiff or have canonical communion with him and other members of the church. And then the very next paragraph, 565, is our so-called sedivicantists in schism. And you say, yes, in as much as one who obstinately refuses to recognize a lawfully reigning pope is a schismatic. I was surprised to, to, to read this um, because, you know, so many, so many sedivicantists do have a love for the papacy um, in, in terms of the institution of the papacy. And they will cite, you know, documents of Vatican I, and they will say, you know, all of these things that, that, that even you have listed on this, on this broadcast that uh, Francis has done are non-Catholic, and therefore, how can, how can a pope be doing non-Catholic things? Do you think you can clarify a little bit what you mean by this paragraph and, and maybe speak to the Sedevicantes who are out there, many of whom um, are going to be listening to this? Yes, because it is a basic requirement to be a Catholic since the, the apostolic times, really, uh, continuously to be in visible communion with the concrete see of Peter, with the holder of, of with the Roman pontiff, because we are not Protestants who are say the Holy See, yes, but there is no uh, Pope. We, we, we are a visible church. This is uh, dangerous, and the church never accepted this, only to, to accept the papacy, but not to accept the pope. That is contrary to the entire Catholic tradition itself. Um, St. Athanasius, when he was excommunicated, he recognized Pope Liberius, nevertheless. And um, Archbishop Lefebvre also always recognized the popes, even so, he had his, um, uh, some points he rejected from the teachings of the council and of the subsequent popes and the Novus Ordo. Um, so first, uh, this is a, a basic error of the so-called sedevacantism. 
uh, they are this defect that they are seeing the church de facto, not in theory, but de facto, a uh, kind of invisible, there is no head of the church. And, and so this is arbitrariness and there, there are several, Sedevacantisms go like sects, they have no uh, future, basically and no and no solution right. because right. there is like the protestants they are then separating one of the others because they are said the vacantists who say that the holy see is vacant since john the 23rd then are others who say no no john john the 23rd did not pronounce nothing directly wrong but with paul the sixth because Paul the Sixth um, approved the text of the council, and then the other Sedevacantists uh, recognize still uh, John the Twenty Third. Others recognize only uh, Pius the Twelfth inclusively. Then other Sedevacantists recognize Paul the Sixth, but not John Paul the Second because of his meetings of Assisi and so on. Then other newly said evacantists, they do not recognize Francis, Pope Francis. So you see there are very, um, this is subjectivism. And this is one argument that the, God is governing his church and cannot leave the church in a considerable long time without the visible head of the church. And so it is impossible for 70 years or 60 years, the church is not governed by, by the visible head. It is against the structure of the church. And then it leads to no solution. They don't think the last consequences. So if there have not been true Pope, then there are no true cardinals since 60 years or 70 years, not true cardinals. And, and how they can <clears throat> elect a new pope, then uh, overthrowing all the, uh, the canonical tradition of at least 1,000 years is prescribed by, by the tradition of the church that the cardinals um, have the exclusively right to elect. Yeah. And to change this rule must be a pope again. To, to 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 and down there is no issue there is no exit of this situation the next um, problematic point of this <clears throat> mentality and stance of sedevacantism <clears throat> is an exaggerated and wrong um, understanding of papacy itself of of the authority of the pope so they are basically <clears throat> um uh, doing a total infallibilization of the Pope, so that the Pope can only be or infallible, or when he is not infallible, he is not more the Pope. This is not Catholic. This is against the teaching of the First Vatican Council. <clears throat> and the dogma <clears throat> says that the Pope is infallible in very restrict situations. It is limited simply you have to read the text of the first vatican council it is very limited and not a pope and and so and the history also the third point the history of 2000 years demonstrated that there were popes <clears throat> who did errors in their not definitive 
affirmations. I repeat, when the dogma says that the Pope is only infallible uh, when he pronounces ex cathedra formally, and it must be as such uh, announced, or at least shown that this is a definitive teaching. And the, the Pope, the Council says, this is the same infallibility of the Church itself. And so the Church, the entire episcopacy, with the Pope is the Church in councils. And the councils were not infallible in all their points. There were pastoral or disciplinary points which are not infallible, even in the past councils. So then, simply take the examples from history. I mentioned Pope Liberius. He excommunicated Athanasius. It was a wrong. But with this, he did not lose his papacy. Then the most famous case is Honorius I in the 7th century, who provenly, by his ordinary magisterium's letters to the Patriarch of Constantinople, uh, promoted or facilitated uh, uh, at least ambiguous erroneous teaching about Christ. And then, um, so general infallible ecumenical councils, three, three, one after other, which are recognized as really ecumenical general councils of the church, all these condemned Pope Honorius as guilty of spreading heresy. Uh, but no council and no pope declared that he uh, lost by this his papacy. They did not. They did not say that from the moment he he wrote these ambiguous, erroneous letters, he lost his papacy. No, uh, there was no declaration, and so on. And then Pope John the Twenty Second, who in the fourteenth century in his preachings publicly promoted a basic heresy that there is no beatific vision until the last coming of Christ. But Saint Spirit of God, he repented then, but he did not lose his papacy. So you see, simply study well the history of the church and change your exaggerated view of the papal authority. It's not continuously infallible, but in and the church can endure also a pope who proclaims errors in outside his definitive infallible teaching. All right, um, I want to move into um, economics just for a little bit, Your Excellency. You um, you define uh, you you define usury as a theft, as a crime against justice, as an extraction of interest on loans. Um, we obviously live in a time of just bathed in usury. It's everywhere. Um, every, uh, you know, uh, governments refer to citizens not as citizens or subjects, but as consumers. Um, we live in laissez-faire um, capitalism. Um, materialism reigns. Um, how can we how can we get out of this system? How can we truly implement some kind of some kind of Catholic economics that works for families? Um, and I, I I personally I don't think that it's going to be the Democrats or the Republicans. It's 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 a third way. How do we get that third way? 
Well, I am not expert in economics. <laughs> uh, in any case, we have to promote the Catholic social teaching of the popes uh, that uh, to avoid any injustice treatment, economic treatment of, of my neighbor. And so we have to, to start everyone in his life to be just in treating your neighbor uh, or your employees. And to give a good example, I think we have to make an alliance of good Catholic businessmen all over the world to provide a just uh, system of remuneration, at least this. But the, the global financial banking system is not in our hands. This is in the hands of a financial elite. Uh, we have we can only state that to a point to the immorality of this system, but I think it's not in our power to change this now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, you, you, when we read uh, Quadragesima Anno or, uh, or if we read uh, Rerum Navarum, what we find is that there's we don't have a society like that at all in the financial elite who are running our lives who are you know um, extorting all of us the dollar is worth less today than it were, was yesterday um, people's savings accounts are being depleted by this insidious hidden tax called inflation um, meanwhile we continue to give a whole bunch of money uh, you know to to Ukraine or to Israel I just wonder, you know, at, at a certain point, what would you recommend that, you know, Catholic families do, especially men who are, who have to provide, I've got a seventh child on the way. They're not, um, what do we do? How, how can we, how can we cope? Um, yes, we are living in the, in a corrupted world. And this will always be, we are not living in a, in a perfect world. And we have to state this. As St. Paul writes, to the Christians in the first generation, you Christians who have to, you are living, you have to shine bright as stars in a corrupted world. And this will be our situation. We have to accept this corrupted world and to repeat to, to improve in our life, in our environment. And also, I would say not to consider the economical aspect is the most important in, in the life of a Christian. We have also to be ready to live in some poverty if divine providence demands it from us because of our faith, because of our conscience. And But we will still have the greatest richness. This is our Catholic faith. This is the virtues which we are transmitting to our children, to the next generation. And even to be ready in some way to live more modestly. This was my experience in the Soviet time where I grew up uh, in this atheistic situation, community, Soviet Union, we had no power, the Christians, to uh, publicly, but we did what we could. And we preferred the Christians because, for example, when the Soviet uh, elites, they have known that you are a practicing Catholic, practicing Christian, they did not give you greater jobs where you could have more income. 
So my parents, they were known as good Catholics. They had no chance to have a better, let us say, salary or better position. And they accepted this because they preferred to be good Catholics rather than to have come more income and so. And this is important, I think, and God will also always provide for you. This I experienced. We lived in Soviet Union modest, but not in misery, but modest. And it was sufficient. And it's also a good education for children to be then uh, in some way to experience some modesty, um, not to have all. And then it is a positive aspect also in the education and to be in your humanity. And then I think also parents must consider that God will never abandon a large Catholic family. Amen. That's beautiful. Um, let's get back to the book. Um, this is the, we're interviewing His Excellency Bishop Athanasius Schneider. The book is called Credo, Compendium of the Catholic Faith. It's available at Sophia Institute Press. Or on Amazon, you can go to sophiainstitutepress.com to get the book, Credo. It has sold out multiple times. They've had to uh, reprint more. Some of the things that you that you uh, included in in uh, the new catechism, I guess, or in this catechism, uh, involve things like social media. You say that social media is a danger to children, and they should be um, they should be protected from it. What are some of the other modern sort of technological or modern things that you tackle in this catechism that just hadn't been addressed in, uh, you know, in 40 years. Yes, it is, which we know, our social media tech technology with the smartphones, internet, and so on, which is most spread and known. Even children now live with these smartphones and they have access to internet. This is very harmful for the children. I think Catholic parents and other parents must very much uh, watch and be vigilant to to find another system to give maybe another tool to the children of course sometimes we have to be the parents have to be in contact with the children when they are in school or so on i understand but simply to give them a simple phone tool which had no access to the internet for example and then also gradually educate the children the adolescents also to make a responsible use of internet and, and, and similar um, technology to practice these. Like we have to uh, educate our children and youth uh, to be protected from pornography, uh, from, uh, from unchastity, and so also in looking and so on. This is a process of education. And so we have to educate the children and to be conscious or the, the parents can in the family <clears throat> let us say <clears throat> say now is to the sunday we will not touch nothing from these social media contacts to really to have a peace to be together and to honor god to be more even humanly uh, free to experience this to make some or in land time or in some individual days uh, Parents can block in their home uh, these issues, uh, this technology, to educate, to make uh, this um, discipline. 
I think um, just on the technology thing, you provide one of the finest definitions of transhumanism I've ever read. It says, quote, what is, what, what is the error of so-called transhumanism? Man's attempt to negate his creatureliness and elevate himself to a higher level of existence by manipulating human nature through technology, genetic engineering, <clears throat> cryonics, implants with brain-computer interfaces, etc., in order to achieve self-perfection or even an alleged immortality, transhumanism embodies man's original sin of wanting to be like God without grace. Your Excellency, that is one of the finest definitions of transhumanism, and I don't think that that issue is going away. I was, I was actually surprised to see that word included amongst all, some of the other modern things that you tackle in Credo. Uh, so my hat's off to you on that one. Yes, as you read, this is the issue of this because this is the, the, the sin of pride of the revolt against the Creator. This is the poison which uh, the devil, Lucifer, had uh, contaminated Adam and Eve and then, and then human beings. This is constantly the revolt against the Creator. Yeah. in this case, and also the so-called uh, um, gender ideology, LGBT and so on, this is a revolt against the, the creation order of two sexes only, of male and female, right. which God wisely and holily created. And the transhumanism is again uh, another um, step against the creation of God and against the Creator. Um, final segment here, Your Excellency, I want to be respectful of your time. We only have you for a couple more minutes. If you don't mind, I just want to ask some pra practical questions about, you know, kind of global events that we're, that we're seeing or how you, how you see things. If you don't mind, maybe we can start with the Russia-Ukraine um, conflict that seems to be ongoing. Um, it's hard in Western news to see what's actually happening on the ground. You probably have better access to information than we do in the West. But it does appear that the Ukrainians are losing and we continue to prop them up. Um, what, what, how do you see it? Well, my general attitude is not to go to politics. A bishop has not to go this. I am avoiding this because I consider them, for example, I, I cannot imagine that the apostles in their time would comment the ongoing wars, which there were also. In the times of the apostles, there were many wars. In, in the neighboring countries and so on, uh, they did not comment this uh, because our Lord gave the mission for the church to save souls and to give principles of morality. And this is sufficient. And uh, of course, in a global way, I would say these wars in our time, as it was the First World War, the Second World War, and it was the modern world wars, on a more um, regional or even world scale are orchestrated by the world political elites for concrete purposes, for concrete aims, to change the political situation, to change categorically the, uh, yes, the, the structures for their aims which are basically the, the achieve, to achieve a world 
government with a world ideology to spread more these. And then there will always be wars, our Lord said to us. There will be always wars. And of course, as Christians, as the church, we have to do all things to, uh, to admonish the people and the politicians to avoid war, because war is always bad and evil <clears throat> and destroys so many lives and brings tragedies, in, in especially to children and, uh, and uh, weak people, <clears throat> uh, unprotected. This we have to say. But in the same time, <clears throat> I think as apostles, have, as successors of the apostles, as the Catholic Church, we have to, to pray much for the peace, to, to all to reconcile both sides always not to, to, to take a political action or a political decision, but to be, uh, we have to be, uh, um, as priests and as a Catholic Church, the mother. When, when two sons are fighting, what do the mother and the father? They try to, in some way, to reconcile them and to be open to both, that they can come and ask for guidance and help. And so is, this is the mission of the church. All right, well, I won't ask you about the US election. I was gonna ask you about voting, but <laughs> I'll, um, I'll skip that one for now, I suppose. Um, all right, final question for you, Your Excellency, um, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. What is included in Credo that you think is the number one most important thing that you're hoping to get across uh, to people? Why buy it? Um, why have it on the shelf? And how, how best to uh, consume it and, and pass it along? I think that uh, um, the, to clarify and to speak uh, sufficiently, about the divine revelation. Therefore, I dedicated in the beginning of the book um, many space for the questions, what is divine revelation? And from this depends all, all our crisis. If we really believe that this divine revelation, which God gave us only once historically in the Old Testament and which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, definitively, and with the, with the last apostle, the, the public divine revelation finished. So God gave us all, as St. John says, Christ, the incarnated word, he brought us all. He told us all what God wanted to tell us. And these we have to stress. And therefore, there is no other divine revelation outside the Holy Scripture and the, the living tradition of the Church, the Word of God, written and transmitted. No. And we have to state this and to have a new missionary zeal, the Catholic Church, to proclaim Jesus Christ as the only Savior, to go and teach what, what Christ taught and to baptize all the people, that to help them to achieve the, the, the state of grace, divine life and eternity. And so I think these points in the catechism, in the credo, where I spoke about the divine revelation and our goal, and it is the most important basic. And then 
also I consider the, the right understanding of the commandments of God, because God gave us the commandments. So the next point, I think the sections among the commandments of God to show, I try to show the, the, the wisdom and the, the good aspect of the divine commandments also. These sections, I think, is, I consider very important. His name is Athanasius Schneider, and he is, uh, he is a successor of the apostles, a prince of the church, and it has been an honor to have him. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us on Paratalk on the Crusade Channel, Live Talk Radio, the way it should be, always on air, always online, as well as on Restoring the Faith Media. It is, uh, it is truly an honor, and um, God bless you, sir. God bless you all. I give you a blessing. Ed Benedict, Adventis Patris, et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descendat super vos, et maniat semper. Amen. Amen. This is Parrot Talk. Brought to you by Restoring the Faith Media. Restoringthefaith.com.